Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Firing a shot through one of the victim's mouths. They left him lying in a pool of blood. New details emerge in the Mississippi case of six white officers' brutal attack on two innocent black men, including sexual assault. And was it really punishment for dating white women? These are some cold, calculating criminals. A 19-year-old girl taken to jail for a simple misdemeanor, and she doesn't make it out alive. I need answers to why my child is gone. What happened to Noni Batiste Kosoko? Plus, they killed O'Shea. I was covered in, it, in his blood. I'm holding his stab wound. Increasing attacks on the black, gay, and trans community. They used to call and say, I'm praying for you. Now they call and say, I'm going to kill you. Are we doing enough to protect them? Then, sharp as always. Thank you. I appreciate that, especially coming for you. <laughs> I'm talking to the one and only Usher. How his nonprofit is giving a new generation the mentors they need to succeed. Working with Puff, he's been an amazing mentor to me. I watched what he did. All that and more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Mara S. Campo. We begin tonight in Rankin County, Mississippi, with a big update to a story Revolt Black News has been following closely. Stunning new charges against six white officers accused of violently attacking Michael Jenkins and Eddie Parker, beaten, tortured, and police used a sex toy to sexually assault the men. And a bombshell allegation that the racist reason behind the attack all boiled down to the victims dating white women. They became the criminals they swore to protect us from. Guilty. That's what six officers pled in the heinous, racist assaults on 32-year-old Michael Jenkins and 35-year-old Eddie Parker on a dark night in Rankin County, Mississippi. No white police officer in the history of the state of Mississippi has ever served jail time or prison time for harming a black person. A motivating factor in the attack alleged in a $400 million civil suit, accusations that the black men were targeted for, quote, dating white women and committing, quote, other racial violations. They were clear that they were there and conducting this torture because Jenkins and Parker allegedly had been dating white women. And throughout the course of this two-hour ordeal, they continuously called them and monkeys. This is a hate crime. On the night of January 24th, six white former law enforcement officers, a self-described goon squad, entered the home of Eddie Parker and Michael Jenkins without a warrant after a white neighbor reported the two black men for suspicious behavior. For hours, the officers tortured Jenkins and Parker with waterboarding and tasers. And in one of the most explosive revelations, the sadistic deputies attempted to use a sex toy to violate both men before forcing it into Jenkins' mouth. They attempted to do that to him from the rear, but Michael Jenkins was so terrified that he defecated on himself and they were unable to do it. Then they forced him to clean it up by stripping them naked and them going in and showering 
uh, naked, facing that kind of humiliation in front of these criminals. As detailed in a federal court document filed July 31st, the night culminated with Deputy Elward putting his revolver in Michael Jenkins' mouth and firing, lacerating his tongue and shattering his jaw. I'm, I'm still going through pain right now. My whole face, no, my mouth hurting right now. Let me speak. The five Rankin deputies, Christian Dedman, Hunter Elward, Jeffrey Middleton, Daniel Opdyke, and Brett McAlpin, and Richland police officer Joshua Hartfeld made sure to turn off their body cameras so there would be no record of the horrific abuse that unfolded in the four-bedroom ranch-style home located in Braxton, about 30 miles south of Jackson. After inflicting serious bodily injury by firing a shot through one of the victim's mouths, they left him lying in a pool of blood, gathered on the porch of the house to discuss how to cover it up. What indifference, what disregard for life. Three of the six guilty officers say they called themselves the Goon Squad because of their willingness to use excessive force and not report it, according to a federal complaint. It's very horrendous how they, they can call themselves a you know, Goon Squad and you know, still uh, put on a badge and say they're protecting people. In addition to shutting off their body cameras, the men continued the cover-up by destroying a hard drive containing surveillance footage into a nearby creek disposing of the men's bloody clothes in the woods and planting evidence, including methamphetamine and a BB gun, which led to felony charges against Parker and Jenkins. The charges have since been dropped. When Hunter Elward, the lead criminal, went back to the police station, he filled out a notarized affidavit saying that Michael Jenkins had pointed a gun at him, and that's why he had shot Jenkins. But it was a planted gun. I mean, these are some cold calculating criminals, but they're also some of the stupidest deputies in their history of law enforcement. On August 3rd, each of the defendants pleaded guilty in federal court to 16 felonies, including civil rights conspiracy, deprivation of rights under color of law, discharge of a firearm during a crime of violence, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and obstruction of justice. I'm astounded. I'm, I'm, I'm real happy that it's, it's finally come to a point where they're getting uh, you know, getting a, a, a feeling of what they uh, what they dish out to people, you know, day in, day out. On the same day the former officers pleaded guilty to federal charges, State Attorney General Lynn Fitch announced her office had also filed charges of aggravated assault, home invasion, obstruction of justice, hindering prosecution in the first degree, and conspiracy to commit obstruction of justice, hinder prosecution. After speaking to your attorney, you want to decide to plead guilty? And on August 14th, all six defendants pleaded guilty to the state charges, facing 80 to 120 years in prison. The former officers, now convicted criminals, await sentencing in mid-November. We're honored and happy that we have been able to achieve these results. However, we're hard-nosed, and we understand justice is still in the balance. There's going to be an intense campaign to hold these criminals accountable. Once we had started attacking this case, they absolutely ran into the wrong forces of justice because we out to justice and by God's grace, we get justice. We'll stay on this case and keep you updated as the blockbuster civil suit makes its way through the system. 
Now to another story highlighting just how dangerous our criminal justice system can be for black people. In May, 19-year-old Noni Batiste Kosoko was arrested and placed into the Atlanta Fulton County Jail System for an outstanding misdemeanor warrant. She did not make it out alive. And now her family, local advocates, and the federal government want to know why. My only daughter, she was premature when she came into this world and she left prematurely. The family of Noni Batiste Kosoko is demanding answers from the Fulton County Jail after the 19-year-old was arrested for a misdemeanor and mysteriously died in police custody. When you have a situation where there's been a history of suspicion, and now that there's a lack of information, that's why we're here. Noni's family was joined by attorneys in a press conference pleading with officials for answers about the death, wondering how their loved one could walk into the jail healthy and not make it out alive. We know nothing. We need to know something. The family needs to know something. And whatever frustration and anger that you hear in the family's voices because of lack of information. In May, Noni was booked on a no-bench warrant. According to her mother, Shashu, Noni suffered from an unspecified mental health issue, and she was not even made aware of Noni's arrest until she had been missing for several days. We don't know if she saw any medical professionals or mental health professionals while she was detained at the jail. We don't know if they, if she saw them and they gave her any help. We, we just don't know. And, and that's really, uh, quite honestly, frustrating. Just two months after going into the Fulton County Jail, Noni was dead, with no answers and no explanations from Fulton County, who claims an autopsy is not yet ready to be made public. Noni's death is just the latest tragedy from the Fulton County Jail. It's bad in here, man, it's bad. Just days after news of Noni's death became public, 34-year-old Christopher Smith was found unresponsive in his cell before later being pronounced dead. LaShawn Thompson is a human rights violation. And just this year, Revolt Black News brought you the story of LaShawn Thompson, who was allegedly eaten alive by bedbugs in the Fulton County Jail. Somebody is responsible for this inhumane death. His family recently reached a $4 million settlement with the county. Get out of the car! Ready for a failure to signal. You're doing all of this for Get over there. Right, yeah. Noni's case is also drawing comparisons to Sandra Bland, the 28-year-old woman who died in 2015 near Houston, Texas, in a Waller County jail, and Jelani Lovett, who died in the Los Angeles Men's Central Jail in 2021. Unlike those incarcerated in federal and state prisons, jail inmates typically have not been convicted of the crime and are just waiting bail hearings. Critics question the ethics of the cash bail system and keeping nonviolent detainees in jail simply because they can't pay. Some people um, that are in custody cannot afford to make cash bails. And even on low-level misdemeanors, uh, the cash bail may be uh, exorbitantly high. Everybody that's in the Fulton County Jail, with the exception of maybe 5% of the population that are in the process of being shipped out to the Department of Corrections, are pretrial detainees, many of which are only being pretrial detained because of their inability to make bail. 
And this inability to afford bail puts inmates at risk of violence or neglect. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, local jails are becoming increasingly more dangerous with a more than 5% increase in deaths since 2018. When you are in a jail, you should not be the custody of the state. You are just detained until there's a determination of whether or not your liberty will be permanently deprived. Many times, uh, certain um, pretrial detention facilities receive funding based on the number of bodies that are currently being kept and housed in these facilities. So there is a, a fiscal benefit uh, to this carceral state. And, and so when we look at the original intent of the system, we have to make sure that it is operating the way it's supposed to. Now, the number of deaths in the Fulton County Jail has triggered alarms at the federal level. In July, just days after the death of Noni, the FBI launched a federal investigation into the jail, citing it has a pattern of constitutional violations, including violence, filthy conditions, and excessive force by jail officers. But for families like Noni's and LaShawn Thompson's, this call to action is too little, too late. She was there for you if you needed her. And I need her now. And since she's not here, I need answers to why my child is gone. When we come back, we are asking why are more and more people dying in local jails and detention centers? And what will it take to stop it? The recent deaths in Atlanta's Fulton County Jail, including Noni Batiste Kosoko and LaShawn Thompson, who was eaten alive by bedbugs, is bringing new questions about the safety of the local jail system, where many haven't even been convicted of a crime. Unpacking this with me today are Keith Taylor, adjunct assistant professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, Dr. Topeka Sam, founder of the Lady of Hope Ministries, and Gerald Griggs, president of the Atlanta NAACP. Um, thank you all for being here. I appreciate you for joining me for this conversation. Gerald, I'd like to start with you when talking about Fulton County Jail specifically, because what we've seen here seems especially terrible. In one week last year, there were two people who died on the same day. Then we hear these terrible stories. For example, this man being eaten alive, allegedly by bed bugs. Why are things so bad at the Fulton County Jail? And I think that's the ultimate question. Um, and that's why we've been investigating through the Atlanta NAACP and the Georgia State Conference, because we want to know why the conditions at the jail have deteriorated such that we are seeing death after death after death. It's very concerning. And honestly, we can't answer the reason why. So that's why it's incumbent upon our elected officials and our investigators, as well as law enforcement, to answer these questions. Well, you know, we said in the intro, a lot of people who are in jail have not been convicted of a crime. In Fulton County Jail, almost half haven't even been indicted, let alone convicted. So who is responsible for oversight, and why are things like this allowed to persist? Well, any jail, uh, the oversight falls on the sheriff. The sheriff is in charge of the jail to keep the conditions and to make sure uh, that the individuals that are being housed there are um, properly being fed, properly being treated, have proper medical uh, facilities. And so ultimately, it's the sheriff. But then also, it's the county commission who funds uh, the, the facilities of the jail. And so those are the individuals at the top uh, that have to be uh, uh, asked these questions, these important questions. And Topeka, I would love your perspective on this because you have firsthand experience with the criminal justice system. What are some of the conditions like in jails around the country? 
I mean, for one, you know, people being put on lockdown. You know, we've seen recently again where, you know, we've talked about pe people being uh, locked in their cells for 23 hours a day is inhumane, right? That's happening all over the place. You know, the lack of fresh and clean water, um, access to taking showers and having proper hygiene products, um, visitation, being able to see your family and how your family is being treated while you're going to visit. Um, being able to work um, and have a livable wage, you know, being paid five cents an hour for a 40-hour work week is slavery. And Keith, you know, a lot of people point to the cash bail system as the problem, because as Topeka just noted, why can't they await their trial dates at home or in some community space? But you actually think the jails are helping make the community a safer place. Why? Jails serve the purpose of keeping individuals who might commit harm to others or or themselves from the uh, local communities in which uh, the crime the alleged crimes have occurred let's be clear they are pre-trial detainees they are citizens who are being held on an accusation and the purpose of the pre-trial detention uh, should serve uh, to either rehabilitate the individual or, or mitigate the potential uh, harm to the community. But now, there are progressive states that have tried to reform the cash bail system. New York State is one of those. That's my home state. And we've also seen an increase in crime in recent years. Now, we don't know if those things are related because crime is a very complicated problem to unpack. But there are people who say, well, if you eliminate the cash bail system, you're going to see an increase in crime. And there are also people in the community that say, given the, the nature of the crime, I may not want that person back on the streets, whether they're convicted yet or not. The fact that they have been arrested for X, Y, Z, I want them locked up until their trial. How would you respond to that? The only people that determine crimes are judges and juries, not the police. So I have a problem when they're saying crime is going up, but there haven't been subsequent trials. So the arrest may be going up, accusations may be going up, but actual crime is not, and actually is going down. An individual is innocent until proven guilty in front of 12 citizens or a judge, but continuing to arrest people and putting them in jails actually makes you less safe because at some point they're going to get out. And if there's no remediation, if they're being treated uh, inhumanely, they are going to internalize that and then they're going to vocalize and act out once they get out. Uh, Keith, how much does it cost to house these inmates? And is there a financial incentive that leads to overcrowding and that leads to, you know, these dehumanizing conditions? Well, in New York City, it costs about a half a million dollars to have a, a, an individual incarcerated. We're paying too much. We're paying too much. Uh, Topeka, you work very closely with a lot of women who are formerly incarcerated and are rebuilding their lives. And so you see firsthand really how this affects people's lives, especially women who are in many cases mothers. So it's not just affecting them, it's affecting their families as well. What would you like to see as an alternative to jail? You know, what I would like to see more of is community engagement. You know, the Correction Association of New York is there because it is oversight of the New York State prisons where you have a body outside of the prison system, not just the wardens, the directors, the sheriffs. And I keep saying people who are in your custody and in your care because it is the responsibility of those who are now having the oversight for this new community that they've chosen to work in and be a part of to take care of the community that they are now serving. You know, when you are incarcerated, um, you have rights. 
Doctor, we're going to have to leave it there. We could talk about this much longer, but thank you all for your perspective. I appreciate you being here with us. But Keith, Topeka, and Gerald, thank you for your time. Coming up after the break, experts have declared a state of emergency for the LGBTQ plus community, and no one is more vulnerable than black, gay, and trans men and women. What's causing this? And is the black community doing enough to protect our brothers and sisters? We'll talk about it when we come back. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. As we know, it's a very dangerous time to be black in this country, and that's especially true if you're LGBTQ+. Last month, a black gay man in New York was killed in what police are calling a hate crime, and black trans women are being murdered in record numbers. RBN investigates the dangers of being black and queer. O'Shea Sibley died as he lived, dancing. The 28-year-old professional dancer was on his way home with friends last month when they stopped for gas in Brooklyn, New York, and started dancing outside the car. Officials say a group of teens started harassing O'Shea and his friends, using anti-gay and anti-black slurs, demanding they stop. This surveillance video shows the two groups arguing. Then, the teens seen here in the red shorts allegedly stabbed O'Shea in the chest. They killed O'Shea. They killed him right in front of me. I was covered in his blood. I'm holding his, his stab wound. 17-year-old Dmitry Popov was arrested and charged with a hate crime, second-degree murder, and will be tried as an adult. The death devastated the black gay community. O'Shea! O'Shea! Crowds marching and dancing in his honor. Hundreds gathering for his funeral. O'Shea has the power to make people laugh for just the littlest things. This is one of the most dangerous times in recent history to be queer, with a spike in both anti-gay violence and legislation. We've seen 356 anti-gay attacks in the last year, and state lawmakers across the country have introduced more than 520 anti-LGBTQ bills so far this year alone. It's so bad, the Human Rights Campaign has declared a state of emergency for the LGBTQ plus community for the first time ever. If I look back three or four years ago, we always get a, a lot of phone calls from people that um, are not aligned with our values. But they used to call and say, you know, I'm praying for you. Now they call and say, I'm going to kill you, right? That's the shift that has happened in this culture, a dramatic change in violence. Nowhere is the violence worse than in the Black trans community. Trans homicides doubled between 2017 and 2021. 73% of those killed were black trans women in what's been called an epidemic of violence. I think for black and brown queer communities, our very existence feels like a threat to too many people. Sometimes it be your own. You can't be us, you will never. You're chasing something you'll never ever get. 
you'll never be there. Comedian Jess Hilarious recently came under fire for what many called a hateful anti-trans rant on social media. And Neo faced backlash for his comments on trans kids on the Gloria Velez podcast. He might want to play with dolls. All right, you want to play with dolls. Fine, play with dolls. Right. But you're a boy right. playing with dolls. For every Black person, every queer person, every trans person, non-binary person, we deserve to live. We deserve to be joyful in every aspect of our lives. We deserve that. So don't let whatever you see from these haters out there deny the fact that we are uniquely beautiful and deserve to exist in the fullness of who we are. Is the Black community doing enough to support and protect our LGBTQ brothers and sisters? Or are we part of the problem? Joining us now, recording artist and trans inclusion speaker, 2AM Ricky and political analyst, Craig Long. I appreciate you both for being here to, to share your perspectives about what's happening in the community. So 2AM Ricky, I'm gonna start with you because we've just heard these numbers about the increases in violence and anti-LGBTQ incidents. And we know that the black community is getting hit especially hard. What are the unique challenges for black, gay and trans men and women that their white peers are not facing? I think for one, there is an attack or a view that the trans and queer community is against masculinity that is seen more within the black community than we're seeing within white communities. They're not having those conversations. I'm a person that although I am of trans experience, I believe that we can all fundamentally disagree as long as your masculinity or opinion doesn't threaten my existence. Neo uh, made some comments basically saying, you know, I, I could not support my child being transgender. You know, kids are kids. If a boy wants to play with dolls, he can play with them, but he's still a boy playing with dolls. And he got some backlash, but he also got a lot of support with a lot of people saying, this is a very reasonable position. When did it become a good idea to let a five-year-old, let a six-year-old, let a 12-year-old make a life-changing decision for themselves? What Neo said is absolutely right. And a lot of even Ricky knows, a lot of people feel that way. A child is a child. Right now, there is an array of different things that children cannot do. They cannot go out and buy alcohol. They cannot go out and buy a cigarette. They can't get behind the wheel and drive. Just because I love my child and I want to make sure that they have a wonderful, beautiful life, but they say, look, I want to start drinking, that doesn't mean that I'm going to create a space for them to start drinking, right? So let's be real here, like, hey, there's not, we, I don't care what anybody does on their personal time, right? But when it comes to children, why not allow them to wait till they're a responsible adult to make these life-changing decisions? A lot of people do feel that it's a very reasonable position to say children should not receive any care that is going to affect their gender. What would your response to that be? So this is not an argument over, do I believe and, and agree with my child doing this or doing that? It's, do you want your child to live? Do you want your child to be able to live a life that they're healthy, that they're safe, that not, they're not struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts and all of these other things because they're surrounded by a community and a family that is telling them that who they are, who they exist to be, and who they were born as is wrong. Because dad doesn't agree with trans people, because mom disagrees with trans people, because I hear auntie repeating certain things that they heard Jess Hilarious or Neil saying online. Now I, as a child, have to go hide and shelter myself in my room. I can't be honest with my parents about my feelings. I can't be honest with my parents about who I am and what I need. And my parents can't communicate with my doctors, my endocrinologists, the people who are caring for this child to make sure this child can grow up and be healthy and be the person that they deserve to be. 
Craig, I want to read you a statistic. An estimated 68% of black adults believe that gender is determined at birth versus 60% of the general public. So it's slightly higher. That is your view as well. Why do you think we're seeing that in the black community specifically? My stance on this subject has been pretty consistent, and I feel that a lot of people feel the same way when it comes to the subject of gender affirming. Um, you know, when you're, you, you, what you are at birth through your genitals is who you are. Biologically, if you are born a, a, a girl, a female, you're a female, vice versa, a male. But why do you think the numbers are higher in the black community? I guess in the short answer, just a lot of black folks use common sense. And, but when it comes to gender affirming, we, we use common sense. We say, hey, a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. Okay, but when you see the numbers of violence and the hate crimes that are directed specifically towards black, gay, and trans men and women, do you feel a duty to protect those who are black regardless of their sexual orientation or their gender orientation? I mean, for me, my stance is, it, regardless of someone's skin color, I think that people should be protected, period. Like, no one deserves any type of violence, hatred or, or ill will towards them for whatever it is that they choose to do in their personal life, right? Ricky, do you think that the black community is vocal enough and active enough in speaking out against some of the hate that we are seeing? Not at all. And I feel like that's why we're having the conversation that we're having today. Even to go to, you know, Craig's response to your last question, are you really a boy or are you really a girl? They said the same thing when we were in the civil rights movement and we were fighting for Black to have the same rights as our white counterparts. We seem to, for whatever reason, not understand that it's all the same family. We wake up Black before we wake up queer. There are Black women being killed just because people think they're trans. So that's why I'm saying that the reason why that harmful conversation has to be limited, because it's not just... Uh, we disagree. This is people's lives at stake. At the end of the day, this is about protection of black people. And we know that discrimination and violence and murder of black, gay, and trans men and women is higher than other groups. So, Ricky, what kind of allyship do you want to see from the black community at large? When it comes to allyship, what can we do? Eliminate very harmful thoughts and conversations like that. The reason why the things of what Neo is saying and what Jess Hilarious is saying and why that is so dangerous is because you as a person with a platform, right? There are a million people who follow your voice. It's a disservice to our community for us to use our platforms to spew out hatred and harmful misinformation that is affecting millions of people that are costing hundreds to thousands to millions of people their lives in affecting the next generation. And what the average trans child would have just heard you say is something is wrong with me. Something's wrong with me. I'm sick. You said we need to eliminate these thoughts. That's where we are now. That's why Neo got backlash. You're talking about a playbook that no one knows in the rules. How can we express how we feel in our opinion? Our opinion on the situation, just as passionate as you are on the, on the opposite spectrum, should be respected. We shouldn't have to feel we're going to get eliminated, canceled, loose sponsorships, so on and so forth. But, Craig, I think the distinction is you're concerned about being canceled, they're concerned about being killed. The argument that people like, like Ricky are making is that what you are saying, you're entitled to say it, but when you say it, you put their life and safety at risk. 
All right, we do have to end it there. I do appreciate this, the tone that both of you have brought to this conversation because things like this, I think, have the, the um, potential to get ugly and hateful, and I'm really, really glad that they didn't. So thank you both for that. Thank you to AM Ricky and Craig Long for joining us. Really appreciate your perspective. So after the break, we're gonna completely switch gears. We have our interview with the one and only Usher. He shares the story about the courtroom visit that changed his life. That's coming up next. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. Usher's been setting Las Vegas on fire with his sold-out residency and setting social media ablaze by serenading famous women in the audience. Our Kennedy Rue is here. And Kennedy, you recently sat down with the legend himself. Yes, that's right, Mara. Usher was in Atlanta to meet and motivate some bright young minds at his Disruptivator Summit, a part of his nonprofit, Usher's New Look. <laughs> Not long after Usher started churning out hits as a teenager in the 90s, his mom visited the courtroom of a family friend, Judge Hatchett. What happened next would change Usher forever. My mother sat at the back of the court, saw these cases she told me about, these kids. It's like, there's just no opportunity. She had me come with her. I got a chance to see what she was talking about. I'm like, man, if that young man had an opportunity, had someone to believe in him, had a mentor, his entire life would have been changed in that moment. If you want to be successful, you got to start early. It was the moment Usher and his mom decided to launch the now thriving nonprofit, Usher's New Look, a 10-year program that provides black and brown teens with the tools to thrive in school and identify the right career. He was just 21 at the time. So talk to me about what mentorships, scholarships, and college tours, how has that made a difference for them? Um, mentorship, managing to, um, pun intended, usher them through yeah. high school and then on into the private sector. Yeah. Uh, is any person from any level of business mm -hmm. had a mentor. Right. Had someone to believe in them and they had an education. They had the skill, they had the talent. What environment do these kids mostly come from? Underserved communities. Mm -hmm. Um, single parent homes. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, homes uh, where there actually are families, but may not necessarily be an opportunity. A lot of the kids that we've been able to mentor are, you know, maybe first-time attendees in college. Mm, absolutely. Mm. And I know you were famous as a teenager. So I don't know that I was famous. <laughs> I felt like I was. Right. No, but <laughs> but um, was college on your radar, Usher? Was that something that you were interested in? Was that something you even think about pursuing at some point in your life in general? No, college wasn't the first thought, mm -hmm. as I found it at 11 years old. Yeah. So I found what I wanted to do at a very, very young age. But famous since he was 16, Usher certainly has had his share of mentors, from Quincy Jones to Harry Belafonte to Diddy. Working with Puff and, and, and him teaching me the ropes, I mean, the very sense of being an entrepreneur, he's been an amazing mentor to me because, and, and in action, because I'm watching what he's done, but mm -hmm. I watched what he did. Right. And I, and I saw 
the trail that he blazed and a lot of those footprints are still visible enough for us to see and walk in. Since its founding 24 years ago, Usher's new look has reached more than 50,000 high school students in 25 countries. And President and CEO Carisha Moore says Usher is hands-on. Talk to me about his involvement and what it means to have such this big entity not only lend their name, but lend their time, lend their actual commitment. And I would say lend their vision. Mm -hmm. You know, he is very passionate about making sure that our young people see the world, mm -hmm. see what's possible, dare to dream. When 300 students gathered in Atlanta recently for the nonprofit's two-day conference called the Disruptivator Summit, Usher was there in person to encourage and inspire them. So Disruptivator, the summit is ultimately to bring young men and women from this region and expose them one to each other uh, as they obviously have like-minded interests to explode or either at least recognize some things in their community. Mm -hmm. uh, but more than that, just preparing them as future leaders. Yeah, absolutely. I love that the theme is be your own superhero. Well, being your own superhero starts with believing in yourself. Mm -hmm. And if you don't believe it, then no one else will. Usher's new look is definitely a good look. And the work he's doing in this nonprofit is so important. I remember what a big difference mentors made in my life. Kennedy, there, there's not a lot that makes me jealous. I'm so jealous you got to sit down with Usher. I have loved him for like half my life. Oh my gosh, Mara, he's amazing. So gracious, so humble, so kind, always gives the best energy. And I really feel like he's one of the last like real performers of our generation. And nobody looks better on a pair of roller skates. That part. <laughs> <laughs> well, after the break, we rock the bells with a festival honoring 50 years of hip hop. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles? And a breakfast cutoff. Ba da ba ba ba. As I'm sure you've heard by now, hip hop turned 50 this year. The culture's golden anniversary has been marked with celebrations of the music and the culture that's moved crowds, including right here on Revolt Black News. Well, last week in New York, the birthplace of hip hop, the Walmart Makers Studio at this year's Rock the Bells Festival offered a live experience that honored hip hop's 50th anniversary and celebrated the makers and the fans that created hip hop culture as we know it today. It's really dope in here because everybody that is a part of the Maker Studio is a black creator. Shout out to everybody here. I feel like it's just good energy. Being an African-American female, it means a lot. By Walmart just giving back to us, it means so much. We got the graffiti going on. We got customization. Walmart doing some incredible stuff. We having fun, taking photos. It's hot, but it's cute. From food to photos to goodie bags, a good time was had by all at Walmart's Maker Studio at Rock the Bells. Walmart, a co-presenting sponsor of Rock the Bells, created the Maker Studio as part of its Black and Unlimited program, which honors Black creatives' endless potential and long-lasting contributions to hip-hop culture. I love the tagline Black and Unlimited because being Black and Unlimited means, you know, it's Black in many things. It's not just one, you know, myopic point of view. 
You know my favorite was the sneaker salon. Like, let's keep it 100. The sneaker salon was just one of the interactive locations within the studio that kept visitors engaged. All were inspired by hip hop's legacy and run by local artists, makers, and business owners. Waleed Cope, a local entrepreneur, was cleaning up your kicks in classic hip hop style. Like, and we could go way back. Run DMC, yeah. right? Shelter with Adidas. The hip hop community has pushed the fashion and sneaker industry to a whole nother level. We're here at the Walmart Maker Studio at the tagging table with some amazing artists. DJ Sage was feeling the tagging table. To have something like somebody in a company like Walmart show love, express, put this together and highlight us as creatives, influencers, DJs, and just us as people um, has been amazing. So Black and Unlimited, we here. DJ Sage, revolt. <laughs> Three, two, one. Emerging Bronx-born photographer Ravy B worked with Walmart to bring the studio to life, giving everyone a chance at a hip-hop cover shot. And if you wanted to get some glam before your shoot, Maker Studios' The Refresh was there for you, filled with Walmart and P&G's Black-owned hair and skincare products. Black people have very unique hair needs, especially our follicles are thicker and curlier, and so all of our products are free of sulfates. Sulfates don't dry out your hair. Uh, we're giving away some leave-in conditioner, which is great for the hair. And when it was time for a break from the heat, the stoop gave guests a place to chill. Growing up in Brooklyn, New York, the stoop was everything. It's where you hung out with your friends. You had to make sure that you were in by the streetlights. Um, so we had a lot of good times hanging on the stoop. It was like our, our own little club, our own little lounge where we hung out. My name is Adrian Brandon. I go by AB. Uh, I'm an artist based here in Brooklyn. I help create these teas to help celebrate 50 years of hip hop. And those who couldn't make the event didn't have to worry. There was still something for them too. Walmart and Network partnered with Brooklyn-based artist Adrian Brandon to create an exclusive drop through the Network app. And the drop made its mark, selling out items like this almost immediately. I wanted to kind of focus on more of the embrace, kind of the warmth these moments that hip hop can create. So we have a couple dancing in the middle of a circle surrounded by their people. Throughout the fun-filled day of festivities, the reason we were all there to celebrate 50 years of the music and culture that changed the world was never far from anyone's mind. Hip-hop influences everybody, every culture, every race, every country. So to be part of this and to see Walmart get back like this is amazing. We need more of this. Well, that wraps it up for us. Remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, Twitter, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download the Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone.
Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.